Welcome to Far Realms Radio. I'm Skyler. And I'm Justin. This is our podcast of many things. Where we give you eldritch advice to improve your Dungeons and Dragons games. Let's dive in. Far Realms Radio. This episode, we're talking about magic systems. Particularly magic systems in D&D. Yeah. How they pertain to the game, how they're built, and some of the differences between the current magic system in this edition and prior editions, as, as well as the, some of the hallmarks of what makes D&D's magic system what it is. Because it's a, it's a very iconic and influential magic system in the game. It's true. It's still... Uh... Uh, you can see the influence in tons of other games. So how how would we describe a magic system from this perspective, for D&D or for any game? So the base definition of a magic system, at least according to like Wikipedia and all of that, or the internet, a uh, magic system is a set of rules that regulate the magical effects that can be produced in a fictional setting. Now, usually you'll see this most talked about in literature, um, fantasy and sci-fi literature is where you'll see this usually the most hashed out and the most different variations and of systems. Um, but we're going to look at it more specifically in games. And the funny thing is the system that we use in this game comes from the literature. Right. Jack Vance and the Dying Earth series, I think. Yeah, that's came from. originally where Fancy D&D. And magic. D- magic has always been an interesting thing to talk about in role-playing games, in, in any game, really, because it's it's usually a way to break the rules. And in any setting, or like a book, too, it, but it has to be con- cohesive enough that you, you feel like it has some sense to it, even though it's decidedly not science. And we'll caveat, no discussion about magic or magic systems would be complete if we didn't acknowledge our... Arthur C. Clarke, right? No sufficiently, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. <laughs> so for the purposes of here, what we're talking about is magic and D&D systems, call it what you want. Uh, it might or might not include psionics or other kinds of things. This is the system of special powers that your wizard, cleric, or if you've flavored it something else, maybe superhero, whatever, in the game how yeah. they get to break the rules. Generally, yeah. And the funny thing is... It's also one of the most complicated systems. Their abilities to break the rules are defined by rules, right? right. There's the, right. A lot of these magic systems, when we think of magic systems in games, we usually think of resources or rules, uh, mainly like because one of the main common features you see across magic systems is that they either kind of obey its own environmental or physical law of nature, or it simply has like a method of limiting quantity and quality of spells that you can use, right? There's some kind of system, some kind of mechanisms that you see across all of them. Right. Even Gandalf had rules. Yeah, right. Harry Potter too. And like the most common mechanisms you see um, is easily MP, magic points or mana. Those are the ones that you see the most. Those are um, my favorite actually. Just most commonly across the most different media, particularly in games, you'll see them everywhere. And it works exactly like hit points, right? You have just like a pool and when you want to do a magical effect, it 
costs a certain amount and more powerful yeah. ones cost more. And yeah, like you said, it could be psychic powers, speech, spiritual powers. It could be science or advanced technology. Right. This is really, it's really any ability. Energy. It's because, a very abstract thing. Yeah, it's a very abstract thing. Usually, you know, this is restricted by character classes, like what abilities you get. But not all games use character classes. Sometimes you'll see archetypes or just skill sets or you buy the individually in a point system. Right. So even like when you look at melee classes, a lot of the time they'll have a resource that works just like MP. This came out, I think, of the video game world. And this was a really great addition back into D&D because back in the original editions, there, was, there wasn't a lot of resource that fighters or rogues or even paladins to a large extent uh, had to expend, you know, so they could adventure for much longer if they were careful and lucky than a wizard or a cleric who had spells they would spend. And, and once they were gone, especially in the case of the wizard, oh, man. couldn't do anything. I mean, in older editions, you pretty much just rested whenever your casters ran out of spells. Like, it was a running joke. Like, wizard's out of spells, time for a rest. Right. So one of the things that I think 4th edition, though we may never want to talk about its name ever again, whatever, uh, one of the good things that came out of it was that it helped rebalance in role-playing games on the table a lot of what other role-playing games, even Dungeons & Dragons-based role-playing games in video games and in other areas, have learned and, and really brought to the fun part of the game, which is everybody gets expendable resources. Everybody refreshes those expendable resources. Magic is just the most complicated of all of the, those resources. Definitely. And the cool thing that I like about tabletop RPGs is you get to use magic outside of combat more than you do in other games. Absolutely. In video games, you don't really get the chance to use magic creatively outside of combat the way you do in a tabletop game because usually there's like some kind of like area you have to walk up to a trigger or a set kind of thing right even in Baldur's gate the video game yeah. <clears throat> most of I your mean, spells are used in battle never winter nights you could use them outside of battle which was nice i was you a could. big fan of just fireballing doors everywhere or charming people yeah just yeah just blow up the door um that was like my wizard signature <laughs> move there i don't know Pick locks or just blow but up doors. But that doesn't exist in like Diablo 3, for instance. Yeah, there's, there's usually more hard limitations in a game's ability to allow you to use magic to fuck up the environment around you. Not always, but either way, you tend to see that more in tabletop games. So, But D&D has a specific origin for its flavor of magic system that's not the same in many of its other peers, like Warhammer or any of the Fate games, you know, D&D's magic system has this, this Vancean quality because it comes from the Dying Earth series, and it's hallmarked by the style of magic in those stories, which, which is when you have magic memorized, you memorize a specific spell, and when you cast that spell, it removes itself from your memory. It's gone. So you might memorize a bunch of them, and you're very smart. You could memorize quite a few, and they, you might even memorize them multiple times in different ways so that you could use them multiple times. And D&D took this wholesale back in the day, and used it as its magic oh, yeah. system. They were uh, big fans of Jack Vance's work. If you think about it, it's a very easy thing to reason through logically. Like, do you know it or don't you? It's not as easy a thing to balance as decades of history turn out, which is why I think the other systems, like magic points and recharge systems and so on, became so powerful in other mediums because, you know, it was easier to balance. Definitely. It's, it's also easier to quantify because it's a point system. It's very clear how much of the resource you have left. Right, right. And you don't have that sticky problem of, oh, you forgot it, and you have to like relearn it, which can be like a little bit harder to sell in the lower layer of things. Right. It constrains what and your story what The story nice thing about mana points is that they're kind of neutral, and you can kind of flavor them different ways, because something like fatigue is the classic cost for magic, always 
right? It's always mm -hmm. fatigue. Mm -hmm. Oh, like, oh, you can cast a spell, but you're so tired. Right. And it kind of shows you that mathematically. And so you're like, oh, I'm out of mana. Like, I need to rest. You know, even even if that's not explicitly stated in the game, it can kind of give you that that Absolutely. feeling narratively. Yeah, I mean, and it lends itself to a wider variety of things. Where, where does it come from originally? So I looked this one up because, like, everyone knows the word mana. No one, I always like, pronounced you know, it mana. mana. Until I met I'm, you. Prob I'm probably saying it wrong. I, no, I think mana actually is the correct I pronunciation. Cannot. I looked it up. If you if you want to say it the right way, and I was Good. just saying it the American I way. I almost always say everything wrong, so that's a win for me. But I think it is mana. Actually, uh, yeah, it's it comes from uh, Polynesian culture or Polynesian language, which encompasses a lot of different cultures, actually. Um, yeah, but it's like Hawaii down yeah, to French Polynesia. It's, yeah, it's a ton of different cultures when you say Polynesian usually, but. Um, there's a alliance of supernatural power is kind of what it generally means. And it first came over into Europe with, from a missionary who had gone there, actually, named Robert Henry Codrington in 1891. Um, I say I will bring civilization to their lot. Right? Well, he actually brought this concept back to Europe. So um, Turns out and, they taught me a thing or three. Right? It was then popularized by someone named Mircea Elade in the 1950s. I have no idea who that is. I didn't decide to look any further than this. Because um, more importantly, uh, Larry Neven uses it in a short story in 1969. And that's the first time you see it used as a magical fuel to cast spells. And from that point, it kind of becomes a staple in terms of in games and literature from that point on. Right. So that's kind of the first person you see really do that for magical fuel is Larry Neven. I have no idea what that story is about, but it was called Not Long Before the End. I mean, Larry Niven is, is a is a famous sci-fi author, so you have to think about smart people going, how would I quantify how much power do you have? Does it come from your soul? Does it come from your body? You know, unlike some of the other kinds of magic that we see in literature, like blood magic, for instance, which has a very obvious cap. When you have no blood, you can't cast spells. You're, you're out of the magic. When you're unconscious, you can't use your magic. Or like a demonic power, which is some cost. You have to trade off warlocks to that, I think, which is yeah. a nice addition to the game. But there, there are a lot of smart folks who have done study on magic systems generally. I think one of the most the foremost, uh, say what you will about his, his novels, um, thinkers in this area, uh, and I think this, this definitely does show in his novels, is Brian Sanderson. Yeah, this guy really thinks so hard or about... Brandon Sanderson. Yeah, Brandon Sanderson, I think, is his full name. He thinks real hard about magic systems. Brian Sanderson and, is his pen name, right? He yeah. wrote the Mistborn series. Yeah, he wrote the Mistborn series. He finished The Wheel of Time. He did a couple of different other things. He's actually quite successful. Number-wise, he's very impressive. Uh, amongst fantasy authors. Hmm. Um, and he also teaches classes on literature and things like that. I've watched like a lecture or two of his talking about this kind of stuff. Um, and one of the things that he's well known for are called, is called Sanderson's Three Laws of Magic. And he's very clear when he talks about these that these are like not rules for everyone to follow. He's like, these are just the rules I use when I write. He's like, you should see what works for you. Do what works. You know, he's right. like, that's how writing works. You kind of got to see, does it work for you? Because it may not. His laws offer a good uh, place for talking about these things. Uh, his first one is an author's ability to solve conflict with magic in a satisfying way is directly proportional to how well the reader understands said magic, right? So when you understand how and why a character is achieving something with, with a certain ability, Makes sense. it's much more satisfying for yeah. you. Like when you watch a Marvel movie, there's a lot of moments, if you don't know how a character's power set works, you may not know why it's funny. Or really you, care. Or know why it's impressive. So she can shoot lasers yeah. too. Cool. One of the examples you could think of is like the jokes about Thor's hammer. You would, If you don't know kind of how that power works or right. that magic works, it's not funny to you. Right. And 
it, that's really not solving conflict in a satisfying way, aside from audience boredom, but it gives you a really basic, easy example. I mean, it's like, like I was saying earlier, magic, it has to be understandable, but not necessarily reasonable. You know, you have to understand what's going on and that it's, that it's magic and that there's some power to it. And even some sense of how it works, that there's a cost, what the cost is. If you don't get some kind of understanding, it just feels like bullshit. And you have to also see that somebody has a complete understanding of it, even if it's not you at the time. Which is, I think, part of what makes it work. And this is how it can be so many different represented representations over so, such time, you know? I mean, there's a lot of study about Lord of the Rings and the use of magic by the elves yeah, versus Gandalf definitely. in the movies and in the books. There's, like, deep study from religious philosophers on that and the Bible and all this kind of, like, here are magical events. So what's interesting to me about it is this kind of thinking it makes sense in books and why I love D&D and magic in particular in it is because it's a, in and of itself a set of tools for telling those kinds of stories ourselves. Yeah, uh, an example that uh, uh, Brandon Sanderson actually uses in his lecture is in X2, you learn that like Nightcrawler, like they talk about how he can teleport places where he can't see, but mm-hmm. he's afraid to do it mm-hmm. because it makes him really uncomfortable because he could fuck up and die. And later on the movie he has to do that to save somebody. And as the audience, you like, you understand what that means and he's facing this conflict and like overcoming this character flaw, the cost. right? And there's this cost and this weakness, right? And that's kind of the next thing Sanderson talks about is weaknesses or costs and limitations. You can look at those as well are generally more interesting than the powers themselves, right? Right. By themselves, the powers are not that interesting. And one of my favorite examples is like Superman can shoot laser beams only out of his eyes, not out of his hands, right? Not out of his feet. You can only shoot laser beams out of his eyes. That's, you could say that's a limitation. It's not a cost or weakness. It's definitely a limitation. But it it puts a kind of a limit on the power. So you understand the limits of it more. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like costs are a classic thing. Like blood magic was a good one. You already mentioned you can cast that spell, but the more powerful it is, the more of your own blood it's going to cost you. And in games that's usually represented in health, health points or something. I think the most important part about this as a takeaway, you know, when I think about this for how it applies to our game and the role that magic systems serve in the game is as a way to catalyze talking about what the magic is between the player and the DM and the other players. Because it it's part of the shared story we have in our head about the game we're playing, the shared yeah. imagination that we all have in this game. And I think that, that that it catalyzes that makes it great. You know, a D&D game with no magic users at the table is boring. Yeah. And no thanks. it takes more work, in my opinion, to make it fun uh, versus one that has a couple of different types where you can talk about maybe a different belief structure, source of magic, conflicting sources. Okay, we have a warlock that right. and serves the devil and a paladin. Different costs, limits, weaknesses, which makes them interesting. Right. Right. And that it's more interesting than just being straight up super powerful at everything. Especially when they're contrasted with one another. Exactly. And that helps people fill in different roles and, you know, it creates a little bit more like team diversity instead of everyone can shoot, everyone can heal. Cool. Right. Right. So... Those weakness, limits, and costs generally kind of like really are what define powers more oftentimes than the powers themselves, especially like comic book characters are great examples. Like you'll see tons of them. Like you can think of a hero and usually know their weakness. Wolverine has no ranged attacks. Right? Like Kryptonite, Superman. Yes. That's what, what are his stories about? His limitations and weaknesses, right? It's usually not about like them just doing winning all the time. Batman's limitation is angst. 
but yeah, so, and the funny thing is these are clearly more designed to be applied to literature and writing, but it can also lead you into game mechanics because we have that nice narrative layer on D&D that you can kind of explore these things. Yeah, and I think that it's also worth calling out that there are other models too, like Harry oh, yeah. Potter models is differently. There's no real cost except if you know the thing to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, you well, know? Especially, yeah. Avatar to, Last Airbender is another one, right? Like, right. You, you, you ha- if you know the power, you have the power, which is like a different... Iron Fist is that way. Yeah, right? Right. And that's the kind of the thing, too, is like those choices have huge repercussions throughout mm-hmm. whatever fictional setting you're in. And that's why his third law is expand on what you have already before you add something new. If you change one thing, you change the world. And that's like my favorite phrase, honestly, in regards to magic systems, uh, is that if you change one thing, you change the world. And D&D spells are such a good example of that. That's why they're all individually balanced and written. Because like if you add something, like you change, you could change everything because of how that could work within the system. I would argue that the that balanced is... N- the wrong word. I think that they They're, are curated. Correct. I and, wouldn't say balanced. I would say prevention of being abused. Yes, that too that, much. That the designers by by five editions in now in this edition in particular, this the way in which the spells are written is very very particular, and they always were. Yeah. But some editions had more it, or less interpretation. More precise over time, depending on the writer. And it's it's gotten more, I would say, curated. Yeah, yeah precise in the language. Yeah, uh, and and there are differences in some of the spells too. It's similar to how magic cards have gotten more precise in their language and stuff over time too, a little bit from when the early early ones came out. Yeah, where it's very broad. Right. But there are still some areas they call out in in magic. I mean, well, and we're looking specifically here at high level stuff, right? Like wish is the classic example. But it's interesting that in I think third, fourth, and fifth edition, maybe I don't remember the original third, they took out the divine version of that spell, Miracle, right? They they just clarified, yeah. they used magic to clarify roles that, within a party. And that changes that world, right? Mm-hmm. Like, all of a sudden, like, only wizards can cast Wish. That's a big deal. That puts wizards up there really high with godlike powers. I think it's sort of funny that they have to adapt all of the lore in all of the novels every time they have a new edition because oh the God. magic system changes. I always feel and so bad. And the world bad. has a cataclysm oh, again. I just felt bad for them when they're like, yeah, and now we're doing 4E, and they're like, what? And they're like, now we're back. Like, what? <laughs> right. Okay. Oh, so we broke it, and then it, we kind of fixed it. But right, and Ed, poor Ed, Ed Greenwood's like, oh, so we're back to my Forgotten Realms, huh? I knew you'd be back. I planned on this from it's the like, start. Sup, bitches? <laughs> I've been waiting. But essentially, like, what we're kind of talking about here is, like, how do we categorize these different magic systems we see across all those media? And the one that you see most often is very similar to how we kind of categorize sciences and it's the soft versus hard magic systems and brandon sanderson also kind of popularized these ideas and this language for talking about magic systems you know he's like on panels and things and you know i'd write stuff so hard systems versus soft systems kind of like i said originate from hard versus soft sciences though you can also look at like hard and soft fantasy or soft science fiction and you can kind of see where the ends of the spectrum lie there but hard magic systems are systems that follow very specific rules. The magic is controlled, it's explained to the reader or the player in narrative detail. Um, You know the mechanics behind how the magic works in the game setting. 
Um, and you can really use this to build cool worlds and different systems because the players have an intricate understanding of how it functions. So you can build onto that structure. This would be an example in his Mistborn series with they're using metals for different purposes yeah. and the power is, is based upon how much you have in your perfect body. Perfect example. Like that. Yeah, right. That's a great example is one of his own books is the Mistborn series. My favorite example is Full Metal Alchemist. That's a great example. And, and this skews more toward the magic is a science line of thinking for magic, right? Well, yeah, it, I mean, it doesn't have to follow the laws of science and there doesn't have to be an explanation. Or the laws of science are broad enough to include yeah, the, whatever this it is. Does, they don't explain why you can use the magic in the first place, right? Or, or they don't get that far into the physics of it. Right. I mean, well, Full Metal Alchemist tries to A go little there. bit, but, but like they don't really go quite to that level. Right. You know, you don't They're not going to give you Einstein form Einstein formulas for it, but they are going to give you the way it binds I mean, to the setting You'll get some really cool looking circles. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes. You will get some of those. But, but yeah. like contrast with a soft magic system, which I would say probably Lord of the Rings is a more soft magic system where it's based on necessity. It's based on narrative necessity. Totally. Correct. What what needs yeah. to happen right now? Gandalf doesn't have any yeah. set spells. He casts light because he's coming over the hill, and obviously that needed to happen. Or he intimidates Frodo or Bilbo because he had to and could in that moment. Yeah, you know, and like the soft magic systems really are just used to evoke that sense of wonder and imagination, and for the reader or the viewer or whatever that's what it's really great at is getting that sense of the awesome right it has a lot more narrative flexibility but it also has a lot more cost you know it's yeah. harder to balance and it's it requires more usually not explained critical all the time on the part of the player and the dm yeah and in a soft magic system like you don't see this a lot in most games because it makes it hard to follow rules of the game usually you'll see harder systems in games than you will in literature. And that's why you tend to see these like most commonly in traditional fairy tales um, and like things like the Wizard of Oz. Star Wars is a good example. Like the force is very unexplained, though I'm sure there's like people listening to this who would argue that a lot. That's <laughs> just how Star Wars fandom goes. I mean, the force should always like, be well, magical and we're not going to talk about many You clearly didn't read these novels and these comic books, Justin. And I'd be like, well, I clearly did not. But, you know. Uh, I have never uh, been guilty of that. Regardless. Ever, I <laughs> <laughs> regardless, right? The, the most systems you see in popular fantasy are hybrid systems. I think Harry Potter is probably the best example because it was one that I was thinking about. I'm like, oh, that one's actually really hard to categorize. Because they have some pretty hard set rules there, but at the same time, it's like, oh, you're the magical chosen one. Right. Like, what? I mean, I would describe X-Men the same way, basically. Yeah, X-Men is, like, hard in the fact that you have to have the X-Gene, but soft in the fact, like, whatever, you could... This guy has laser eyes because of right. it. This person can warp reality. Superheroes very that easily just fall like into this category. That guy's just, like, blue and fuzzy, like... You know, like I mean, you look at in, like X gene. Spider Man is very, very powerful, right? but he lives in the same universe as Silver Surfer. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. And like, yeah. And the Punisher. Avatar: Last Airbender is also pretty mixed. You know, there's usually costs. Like they get tired. Right. But it's pretty unclear about what it takes outside of like who can and can't bend. You just can or can't. You know, it's like training based. It's like, are you, you're force, if you can do it, you have some. You're force sensitive or not? Right. <laughs> Force does have a cost, but we're not sure what the cost is. I mean, Baby Yoda passes out after he uses it. I mean, he it. clearly gets tired, and it's adorable. <laughs> so that's a good system for me. Right. I'm, I approve. But, you know, I think Song of Ice and Fire, like Game of Thrones, basically yeah. is a soft magic system. There's no... They don't explain. They don't explain it. They don't try. It, it has narrative dependency. It's never used frivolously. This is true. Right? A hard you, magic system could be used frivolously. You have to be careful in, if a soft magic system, like how 
frequently you're busting it out because that sense of awe and wonder is just going to get reduced if you overuse it. Right. And then it just becomes this like get out of jail free card for the whatever protagonist you're dealing with, you know, which I think is the actually what Jack Vance wanted to do with Vancing system originally, you know, to have it feel like there's some sense of wonder. You memorize it and then you cast it and it's gone for some reason. It's wondrous again. Right. And and then you can memorize it again. And that would always mean that it was forever impermanent, forever magical. Yeah, I get it. Right? That's true. Um, Which I guess is the sort of the counterpoint to the mana, mana points or MP or magic points, even though I love them, in that it becomes quantifiable, which is a hallmark of science. Yeah, totally. And you honestly didn't really see much of a change to that Vancian system until much later. No, D&D... Like 90s? D&D kept it all the way through 3rd edition. It wasn't actually... You know, the Vancian system persisted and persisted and persisted, and it expanded upon it and put a rule set around it based on levels of spells. Right? So D&D added... When it added levels of spells, a kind of categorization, mm-hmm. as opposed to just if you have a narrative around memorizing spells and caching them, it's mostly based on what you find, what you had access to, not based on how powerful you were necessarily, or there was, it wasn't quantified. They didn't need to create a system for it. So D&D came along and did, and it was one of the first systematized game systems. Oh, for sure, for magic in general. Right, and so it, you know, Warhammer is one of the other early ones, yeah. and Shadowrun is one of the early ones didn't quantify it. They, Tun- they took Tunnels it a very different Tunnels and Trolls was similar, but, like, the flavor was so lame. <laughs> like, the names of those spells, I hated them. I mean, it's called Tunnels like, and Trolls. Some of them were funny, and then some of them were just, like, stop. So I think that D&D didn't actually really formally challenge... The ma- well, maybe I'll say challenge is the wrong word for it. They introduced uh, non-competitive styles of magic systems in second edition, starting in second edition, with spell points and psionics and these kinds of things, you know. But that they continued to build upon even in third edition, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until fourth edition when they finally said, "We're just going to re- yeah. rethink this whole thing of power systems from yeah. the start." Third edition, they just switched it to you. You no longer memorize them, but you prepared them and it was the exact same mechanically right but they tried to change that poetry layer a little bit because they introduced because they introduced something that competed with the wizard right the wizard always memorized spells and then in third edition they had a sorcerer who didn't right but had the same spell list and a similar power source and was basically a wizard in all the ways except these few caveats the wizard's like where'd this trust fund kid come from and they and but then they had to look at magic you could just do it and then they had to look at clerics and they had to say well Clerics could memorize them, but they're not necessarily reading a script like we, you know, or like a, a text like we thought before. If they pray, they might just get them because also druid, you know. So they just said prepared is a more neutral yeah. term. Fourth edition is the one time D&D really steps away from that Vancian system. And I think actually this was a strong choice. Say what you will about fourth edition from a systems perspective. This is a way that they quantified powers so well mechanically. They did take a lot from video games and a lot of people, I think, griped about it. But I think it actually wasn't that they took a lot from video games from fourth edition. It's that they restricted how you play the game. So they leaned so much into the tabletop component with miniatures and battle mats that the large section of the gaming community that didn't want to have to use that revolted. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I've never understood why they wrote that aside from to sell toys. And because uh, in my mind, it's never an either or, you know, it, it, you, you can always use both at the table or one or the other, you yeah, know, like it, everybody flexible. should get to choose. So and you could even do that with fourth edition, too. But it just... Uh, I don't know. It so, was a bad choice on the design, so maybe the writer's part. Vance is back. Right. In 5th edition, Vancean system is back. But uh, but they've introduced some Anarth Arcana to, to change some of those kinds of 
assumptions because yeah. people have a lot of different ideas I mean, and about there's what magic more, can there's do. more of a lean towards more spontaneously casting, which is kind of a step away from the Vancing system that you're not preparing or memorizing them before. There's more good spontaneous casting options you can lean into. Right. I mean, and you get them back faster than the strict sort of system when you sleep in the Vancian way. You know, so if you look at it from the, the long view, that they broke it so ardently and intentionally in 4th edition allowed them to rethink it in 5th edition and to try to strike a balance between what it had before and what it what it is mm-hmm. today and what, what where the community went with it too. So I looked up what the initial reception of the Vancian magic system was. Because I know you have opinions on the Vancian magic system also. And in 1976, in the strategy review, which was prior to Dungeon Magazine, uh, the Dungeons & Dragons magic system, Gary Gygax explained it himself, how people had taken it. And his main issue was that people would error and think that having one first level spell allowed a first level magic user to endlessly cast that spell. And that it did not have to be rememorized and prepared again after a single usage. Right. You're first level, so you've achieved first level. You can use that whenever you want. And my favorite bit is this quote from him. It's very Gary. To further compound the difficulties, many dungeon masters and players, upon learning of the more restrictive intent of the rules, balked. They enjoyed the comic book characters, incredible spells, and stratospheric levels of their way of playing. How dare they, Gary? <laughs> oh, those players. How uh, dare you? Oh, how dare I'm they have so judgy. How about dare it. they have fun with your game? <laughs> yeah, it's the cost of Gary double talk of like you should DM this way or you're the worst, but it's okay if you don't. Right. So I think I have never been fond of the Vancing system. I never understood it when I encountered it in second edition. It's such a staple of the game, and it's definitely gotten better as the game has gone by. But I think when it comes to the feel of the Vancian system, the reason it persists is because it's part of the brand. It's the same reason that D&D has always used a D20. It's the same reason that it still has fighters, it's, it's, paladins, it's clerics. part and of the game's culture. Bards. Yeah, it's part of the culture. It's it's never going to go away as, as one of the options. But one of the things I like about this edition is that it's easy to modify. And they started doing a lot of this kind of stuff really in third edition when they picked up different types of magic. You know, and uh, so before we get into a lot of the different ones that we saw there, let's talk about what the, the the types of magic that we see in fifth edition now. Maybe starting with the obvious one just that we just talked about. The overview last session. We have the arcane, right? And this is wizards we were talking about very recently, and they they are the ones, the mostly the purviewers of arcane magic, the classic ones. I mean, sorcerers as well. It's what you think of when you think of magic most of the time, right? These are the things that you'd commit to memory. You know, they're they're basically prepared in in this particular kind of way. Um, we're usually reading from a book, but a sorcerer gets them from a bloodline. Yeah, you're usually using intelligence or charisma for these. Warlocks get them too, to a certain extent, but it's really tied to whatever their patron is. And warlocks, by their very nature, break the rules, which is kind of interesting. Packed magic, you could almost kind of put it in its own space. Yes, because it can pull from any source. Yeah, and it used to work uh, a little bit differently. We'll get to that too. Right, so, I mean, prior to 3rd edition, it was basically all arcane was linked to intelligence. And... You know, all, by contrast, all divine was wisdom. Um, and Angry GM has a lovely rant about the history oh. and culture of ability scores, and I think I mostly agree. Me too. Pretty good. So, so I guess, but the the point is, back then, and bards didn't have quite as much magic, you know, and they had to sort of balance. And third edition did mm-hmm. this also. You had classes that needed to balance between multiple ability scores, right? You had to go have like a, 
a reasonably high intelligence yeah. and a reasonably high yeah, charisma. Yeah, if you're a paladin, you were sp- splitting your scores. Right. And they were like, let's introduce a monk class that's also, built to be split between also scores. Also splitting your scores. Same with druids a lot of the time. Yep. You know, the, the yep. quote-unquote hybrid classes. Right. So, you know, one of the things I think that they fixed in 4th edition but didn't really sell very well uh, that actually feels the best so far in 5th edition is that each class has a primary power source and the power source is tied to whatever it does. So arcane magic is not just intelligence. It's yeah. however you access it. Exactly. It might be through your personality or your soul or your spell book. I think it's a much better way of doing it. Right. Right. Yeah. So like intelligence would be wizards and bards and sorcerers are using charisma. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, they split arcane is really defined by how it's split up into different schools of magic. And I've always liked this because... Uh, they first actually introduced the school specialization system in the Dragonlance setting, which is my favorite uh, <laughs> set of fantasy novels. And I didn't know that. Oh yeah, I love Dragonlance, and it. Well, became, I, know, I knew you. I didn't. I know they were interested in Dragonlance. Yeah. And so with that, it kind of got rolled right into second edition, and yeah. then you had this yeah. school set up. Obviously, it's different than it was then. But it's an easy way to talk about the differences in what spells but, do. But that's like how the arcane like setup works is that you have these split schools you have some universal spells but they're usually split up into disciplines yeah i mean and they range from things like enchantment to illusion necromancy evocation all sorts of sort of esoteric ones too like nethermancy chronomancy yeah you can get real esoteric geomancy Depending upon, like, second edition had uh, second the, edition had a lot of these so options. So many, it had yeah. so many different kinds and it was, of it, schools. It had a long lifespan as an edition as well, it so did. It, did. it had a lot of time for content to be tacked on. Right, lots of, and and they they because there wasn't the internet, they then, accumulated them periodically in these like anthologies of all of the spells periodically. That was nice. I would love to have a a, a spell book of all of the spells for five e. That would be nice because if more start coming out in new books, I'm gonna lose my mind. <laughs> it's true. So contrast with divine magic, which classically has always been uh, granted by some patron deity you know, or somebody that you worship or, or something like that, right? It's, Sometimes now it's just your conviction. They started doing that in third but, edition but too. But lore-wise, it usually comes from some kind of divine god source. Right. And and the reason they did that is because in third edition, and this actually I think was a revision in 3.5, uh, there were enough players of the game who were atheists and willing to write in <laughs> that they couldn't play a cleric who didn't have to worship a That's god. so funny because as an atheist, I love playing religious characters. Well, I was like, yay, a worldview. I can follow this. I know what <laughs> I to mean, do. Stepping into somebody else's shoes, like, sure. It's great. I have like this like moral guidelines to follow based on my character's belief I was just, system. I was just very proud of them, I guess, writing in and getting it changed, you know? And so there were these domains that were split out and, and they allowed players to be... Uh, because it was the same divine source as a druid, right? But a druid mm-hmm. didn't worship anybody. Yeah. And so it allowed the, cler- the, players the to be clerics who they, had... Right, the, the druids did. The old faith. They called that in 5th edition. That's what they called it. But in 3rd edition, it was just uh, nature. Oh. It was, you know, it wasn't it wasn't even called that. And, and But you could also just be like a cleric of good and healing and not worship a god and your piety in those abstract ideals... Yeah. Uh, was what did it. And what I liked about that is I loved D20 Modern when they pulled in your like fealty to an organization straight from that. You know, so it's like, okay, that's interesting. It was a nice addition to it. And yeah. that, that, that sticks here too. It's it, Basically, it's based upon belief. It's not about you it learning also, how it, it also works. also lets you build a sweet cultist PC if you want. It does. It's also not about <laughs> having the force of personality to alter reality like a, a charisma-based yeah. caster. It's more about your desire and faith that it will happen 
makes it happen. Yes. And your deity grants it to you or your magic of you, whatever it is. Now, if you're a paladin who has divine magic or you're like, oh, it doesn't have to come from a deity, yeah. but it does have some faith-based power source in something. Uh, usually the one of some of the biggest distinctions between divine and arcane is that divine casters can wear armor while casting their spells. <laughs> They're also some of the only ones that can heal. Right. And that the the chance of arcane it used to be called arcane spell failure. And if you're wearing magic and or excuse me, if you're wearing armor and trying to cast magical spells, you had this percent chance that your spells would just fail. Yep. Uh, they later took that out of the game after three five. You don't see it anymore in five E. But you will, will notice that casters usually do not get heavier armor proficiencies unless they take a feat or a multi-class in order to get them. But you'll notice clerics, for the first time, they've had their heavy armor proficiency taken away from them. Right. They used to be able to wear like heavy armor, which... You have to take certain subclasses to get it back now. The cleric for so many so many editions was the strongest kind class. Of, kind of hurts me as a long time, like, big fan of playing a cleric. I'm but, like, come But on. now they can heal at range. It's it's nice. I think the trade-offs work fine because you can just lean into whatever subclass for whatever, whatever kind of cleric you want to play. Right. It just feels like something's being taken away from me. <laughs> um, and, you know, divine spells are usually, like, less flashy and less offensive. There's usually more healing or dealing with undead. They all usually deal with the undead. Right. But... The nice thing is that you'll see clerics also get overlap with arcane based on what domains they take. I believe back in older editions, this was called like spheres of influence. Yeah, there were spheres. Which spheres it was like of a influence? set of big circles interlocking with each other. Well, that was just sort of a pretty picture, but it, uh, it, it mostly had to do with there was a desire to categorize divine spells in the same way as arcane spells were categorized because arcane spells were reasonable and you can understand them. And there were some spells that both would have access to a few, mm-hmm. a few limited number. And then there were all the divine ones. Well, what do you, what do you categorize those? You know? Yeah. And you can't necessarily call I, them I'm, what the wizard spell would be, even though they, they did in a later edition put like healing spells in conjuration, for example. But uh, but you need to call them something. So they were called spheres of influence. You know, how what what spheres of influence did your spells Yeah, and cover? I think you could use... Spells from the ones on either side of the one that you chose as well. Right. It was based they were on closely a, related to that one. And it yeah. was and, and the, the notion was that a certain deity would have a certain sphere set of spheres of influence or domains. Yeah. Right? That it this, that it would govern. This and, evolved in domains. And they were basically related. So they would have one core one and then the adjacent things around it, in the way that Thor is the god of thunder and lightning. Mm-hmm. And then, right? exactly. and also, you know, hammers, the loud ringing of smashing, you know, thunder. Right. And that's why in 3 5, you get two or more domains usually. Right. Because they were trying to make up for those different spheres of influence. But one of the things that DD has learned as a game over these many decades is that its assumptions, when it pulls in a system, have baked in cultural assumptions that they had yeah. to scrub off in later editions. And this was true here too. And I had a note here because I just missed being able to do this. In third and three five, clerics could just spontaneously cast cure wounds or inflict wounds, uh, based on your alignment. Based on your alignment, but uh, using any spell. So that was always nice to have back then. Yes, because you had to prepare your cleric spells all the time and be like, "Oh man, how many how many healing spells am I going to have ready?" Right. They made it so that you didn't have to memorize. So like in second edition, yeah. you had to choose how much healing am I going to memorize for my party it's today. Another place where you see some spontaneous casting mixed into the Vancian system to just make things more flexible. Right, because they knew that they had a, a large subset of players who were going to go through dungeon crawls and expected healing, but the cleric also wanted to ha- like play with some fun the spells. Cleric players like I want to use my other spells for once because they're cool. And uh, but did need to heal, so it was. I think it was an interesting compromise. Yeah, I think that was a. I liked that bit of design back in three five. Whereas druids, you know, also a divine caster, didn't have that ability. They could instead swap it for summoning. 
right? You know, the notion that a druid should be able to summon animals all the time, right? That sort of <laughs> green man, I guess, in the in the wild forest fairy. Yeah, right, looking yeah. Like, here's a deer, here's a boar, here's yeah, a bear, like here's another bear. Whenever here. they're in trouble, they're just pulling a rabbit out of a here's hat. Here's a dolphin, have a squid, you know? Like, what? Oh, man, just, just has a big hat, <laughs> pulls rabbits out. Right. That'd be great. And, you know, and you, then you started to see, like, paladins. Paladins always had this, and rangers didn't for the longest yeah, time. Yeah, rangers. When did rangers get spells? Uh, third edition. Third edition? Yeah, they got they got spells in third edition, which was really interesting, because they also got dead, better animal companions. You know, they sort of felt it, like they got to level man, up, even they were still Animal companions in 3.5 are great, because you could fully st- kit them out with, like, armor, and they had full action economy and agency, unlike in 5e, where they're just, why bother? Yeah. So, but they, they became hybrid classes. And this is the first time we, see, we saw actually in third edition these hybrid classes, the paladin, the ranger, who had some spells. Yeah, and the monk you know. has their key abilities, which are pretty much spells. Previously, they were only a few quote-unquote hybrid classes, like the illusionist, mm-hmm. you know, which truly, was... Truly, yeah, truly what were called the old hybrid ones. Right, right. Or, the, you know, the paladin was its own kind of thing. It, wasn't it originally really... was a subclass of fighter. Right. It became its own class. So, you know, they had these uh, these different spheres that we were talking about in 2nd edition. And in 3rd edition, they, they tuned up a lot of the magic and they made it more flexible, a more understandable system, and a little more broad with the goal of making it easy to bolt onto. And their notion was that they would release subsequent books and it would save them a lot of time so that they could bolt onto their existing work. And also they debuted the open gaming license because 3rd edition was so easy to bolt onto that the designers said, we can't stop people from wanting to do this. So they created an open system and then said, please, let's take everybody else's money as well. Let's bring everybody to the community. Everybody can design for our system whatever you want. And you can have Weird West. You can have great. S- space opera. It was a you big can deal have at the D&D. time. It was so huge. Such a big deal. I mean, my gaming group at the time was like, we're going to buy all the books. There was that kid who's like, I'm going to own every single one. And I'm like, it's not possible. It's yeah, not possible, Sean. So, you can't do it. There's it, so many. You, you're never going to be able to. They're going to be like... There was a bit of power creep because of that, and that's one of the reasons they're so careful with 5th edition and the release schedule. One of the things I learned out of that power creep that I wish more DMs had learned was how to spot balance in a book. Because I bought I, I bought a bunch of them too, and I have some. I can look at one of them on my shelf right now that I have still use, never used because it was like a magic item compendium, and it had really it sold itself pretty well. But if you actually went and looked at the... Uh, magic items in it, and you couldn't open it and flip it in the store because it was sealed. Of course. Then uh, then you would see how deeply unbalanced all of the items are. And by unbalanced, I mean like, you know, they're randomly handing out, here's a compendium of swords plus 15 that are Vorpal Holy Avengers that also give you plane shift. And I'm like, I get it. I get it. How did this get in the book? But you're publishing this? Really? And they're like, the book is full of these kind of things? This is too much power. This is... you, you know, I, it tells me a lot about the game that you that you play. That's right. interesting. And it's such a judgy thing to think, but it, what it taught me in that moment, because I have had that as well, was how to pay attention to it at the table, right? Because obviously somebody bought that book and it fits well for maybe the table where they made it, enough so that they published the damn thing. I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, it became so widespread, I think, that... When they changed it in fourth edition, they went maybe too far back the other way. Yeah, they, and, they and that really was a lot of the communities like complaint way back down. And it was mostly about brand it because of that change. exact thing. It was know? a big change in the poetry and flavor level too, because they changed divine spells to prayers, right? And like they changed a lot of the cleric mechanics, and it just all the other classes kind of even in fifth edition. I like to make the joke: everyone's a cleric now. <laughs> yes, in terms of like things that everyone can do that used to kind of be the cleric's ballpark. And I will admit he was a little 
he or she. I'm not assuming this cleric's gender. <laughs> Whoa. In your case, you're but, a he, but so the your clerics, cleric could probably be a he. Clerics were know. pretty OP, and I loved it. They were. They were the most powerful class since second edition. In second edition, third edition, three five, and fourth edition, even in Pathfinder, they were the most powerful because they could wear heavy armor. They had moderate hit points. They had moderate attack bonus and magic. And they had powerful magic and healing. They had sustain. And in second edition, they had one for one an equivalent spell for something a wizard could do, all the way up to ninth level. You know. And in third edition, they took away some of that, but they made it more specialized. And it was still very powerful because if you just did the numbers, you know, you would you would win always. You were the, you know the most pretty much the best of the class, barring the Lucky crits. Yeah, you never know with those crits. So, I don't know, 4th edition, I think, did a good job balancing it. That's, of course, where it was lauded. It, of course, lost everybody else in the poetry layer and everything else in the game. That The soft parts that bring people back to it. It didn't yeah. feel or look Played really like well, though. And then, I think, in 5th edition, now we have a nice compromise, right? You we know, do. Like the cleric, the cleric is is good if it feels different than the druid even though they're both casting divine spells the power sources really clarify that they, yeah. they're not that 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 categorization is kind of not really meaningful anymore and i wouldn't be surprised if in the next edition we don't even have a distinction between arcane and divine in that way oh yeah there's if it's just based on power and source. there's been a lot of other types of magics that have popped up throughout the history of the game some of them have fallen by the wayside and some of them have continued and evolved into different things. Uh, but before we talk about those... My mouth is pretty parched. I think we should stop into this tavern over here. Yeah, I agree. It looks rather divine. <laughs> <laughs> quite quite a magical spot. Yes, let's go there. Welcome to Tavern Talk, where we review a, bu- a brew and toast to you. So this week we're drinking Elysian Space Dust IPA. El- Elysian Space Dust. Elysian Space Dust. See, I told okay. you I can't pronounce anything. I know, it's okay. And this is one I guess I picked because magic is uh, uh, basically Elysium Space Dust, you know? <laughs> Pretty much. Decidedly, or maybe the, the reverse is true also. Um, it's, a, it's, a nice, it's a nice IPA. It's, it's very... Um, strong in your face IPA. I love that it's labeled as Space Dust IPA. The hopping is pure Starglow energy with Chinook to bitter and late and dry additions of Citra and Amarillo. 8.2%? Oh, 8.2%. That is a, it's a feisty beer. Who makes yes, this is. bad boy? Um, it's made Elysian Brewing Company. by Elysian Brewing Company. Oh, well, Elysian... Used to be the Greek heaven, I believe. Elysium, yeah. Yeah, it was like fields of gold. It depends. I mean, like... Fields of hops, I guess, in this case. Heaven slash part of the underworld? Kind of, yeah. It was like a later addition onto the underworld. It was the place where all of the greats went when they died. Yeah, if you were legit. In certain versions, depending on how you read, Cronus is in charge of it. In other versions, another king of... No, it's a king of Crete, who eventually became one of the judges of the dead. But yeah, no, Hades has to hang out in the shitty parts. He does. That's how it works. That's the deal he made. He's the king of the underworld. He picked it. <laughs> he did. He did. Don't be sour. But yeah, this beer is one of my favorite IPAs. Uh, I think it's fantastic. Wow. I like this IPA, um, but I don't drink as many of these as I drink of other IPAs. I, and, but specifically, what I mean by that is in a row. I don't drink as like yeah, this, this is, one and then another one and then another one. It's a lot. It's like 8%. some IPAs, I can be like, yeah, all right, I'll do a third. Yeah. This one, I'm like, okay, 
I've had two and I'm good. Yeah, but it's it's, it's, it's very strong. forward and it's great for that. And it is nice. It's like a sort of a spicy isn't quite the right word for it. No, um, it's, it's, it's zesty. It's, it's just bitter and zesty enough. You know. Yeah. Right in between the two. It's definitely not fruity. No, maybe that's why I like it. It's not too hoppy either, though. It's 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 a very well balanced one. It's it's definitely strong on the alcohol content and the palate, both. But mm-hmm. I enjoy it. Um, it's also very similar in theme to the dice that we're giving away. Do you want to talk about our promo? We should. So, new year, new dice, new decade, really. New decade, new, new dice. Oh, that sounds better. We should use that. New decade, new dice. And uh, we just want to share them with you, but we'd like you to share our show. So, if you share the show on Twitter with the hashtag Far Realms Radio, or you just share the show in any other way. Send us proof. You send us proof to farrealmsradio at gmail.com. We'll put you in the raffle to win. We have two sets that we're giving away. The, the, the first and best is a Die Hard Dice Sinister Emerald. It's a excellent looking shiny with green, the Far Realms Radio green. Um, and they, I have a few of these sets, and they're not cheap, and they roll really well at the table, and they shine ah, so well. They're great. They're beautiful. They're the kind that you go, ooh, yeah. And they're made of metal, so they have a good heft, and they, they're well balanced. And the second one is a Cosmic D20. Dire D20. Dire D20. Big size. A little bit larger than the others. It's really excellent for a DM. We'll give that to the second place winner. It's good for those scary rolls. Yeah, it's it, when you roll this die, the players notice. They definitely pay attention. It matters. It's like a nice... We have pictures online, and it's a nice sort of shimmering moonstone-like purple, but textured. It's... Yeah. You'll it has a nice it. thunk. It does. But yeah, share the show. Get some dice. And uh, why not? We'll toast to you. Yeah. So cheers. Cheers. All right. We should be back to the show. Gulp. Let's get back to the show. Back to the show. So let's talk about um, what other types of magic there are from arcane and divine, right? Because this is where it starts to get weird, and this is where I start to really love why we have magic systems. Yeah, I think some of them work really well, and some of them I'm like, I'm glad we don't have that anymore. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I agree. I like this one. This one's always been one of my favorites. Me too. It's not the favorite of my party members when I use it, (laughs) probably because there's a good chance of me casting Fireball centered at myself at level one. More non-zero, non-zero chance. It's a non-zero chance, that's for sure. Um, Wild magic. It's a form of the arcane magic, but it's not going to function any way the same mechanically in the game, so good luck. Right. I mean, it taps directly into magic itself, supposedly. And in Forgotten Realms 5th Edition, that's the weave, yeah. such as and it is. There's tattered. a subclass for this in 5e. It's I, existed since 2nd Edition. I love it that it's made it all the way through with its big table. I know. And what's great about Wild Magic is that it's the epitome of randomness. And it's like Chaos Incarnate. When you cast spells, not everything that you cast is what happens, actually. It's really, yeah. in the sense of, like, magic is truly wondrous and magical, this is perhaps one of the best realizations of it. The problem is that that includes that sometimes it casts spells that are very injurious and detrimental to you and your friends. Uh, and this is classically, there's when you roll a one on a spell that you cast, and every time you cast a spell, you roll a d20. So 5% of the time, 
This is only for wild magic. I think it says DMs can also just randomly choose. They can just randomly make you do it. But at least 5% of the time, the spell you cast is going to go awry, and something wild is going to happen, which means you roll on the wild magic table, which is a D100 table of other random the, shit. The best kind of table. That That's going to happen. And one of the most infamous ones on there, it's not the worst, but it's one of the most infamous, is that it drops a fireball spell. Centered on you. Centered on you. And you are not immune to it, and neither is your party. So basically, that means that it's possible you, that when you cast a spell, all of you just die. You, you could TPK yourself, like, <laughs> in the first round of combat, like, right off the bat. It certainly adds a thrill it. to the game. But uh, but I think it, yeah. that thrill is part of what Some makes tables are going to be like, please don't. And some tables are going to love it. But Wild Magic exists to this day. I think it's hilarious. I get a kick out of it. I agree. I like it more as a DM than a player. Yeah, I mean, it... it One of... It keeps it fresh very, very easily. If, if you want to fuck with your players, give them like a companion that uses wild magic. <laughs> see how long that companion no, lasts. He will die. Yeah, exactly. He will die They'll fast. Be like, they're like, all right, we're kicking this guy to the wolves. <laughs> keeps casting fireball on us. So one of the other ones that stuck around for a while and is basically lifted straight up from Norse mythology or Tolkien is elven high magic. And mm. elves have always been magical creatures, this right? This is more in the lore than the mechanics most of the time, right? They, they had they had a lot of it in 2nd edition, and mm-hmm. then in 3rd edition they tried it with prestige classes, but magic was so flexible and had already covered all those bases, there really wasn't a lot of territory for them to introduce. Gotcha. But in 2nd edition, you know, 2nd edition to its merits was really good at tying magic to the feel that it wanted. So there were, this is why I had such a comprehensive spell list over the, the lifetime that it had, because there were so many spells lists that... They created for a specific setting or a specific race or a specific town. That's true. They were all about creating specific things for right, specific right. stuff. So they, they pulled it out because there was, in a lot of the lore that fed into D&D, there were elves, and there were different kinds of elves. High elves, wood elves, dark elves, etc. And they, and they all were magical creatures. And their magic was a soft magic system always, but it reflected their tone. So high elves had high magic. You know, they may have started the magic. They may be the first magical creatures, like in Tolkien's world. They had the most powerful magic of light and fire and craftsmanship and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's all mixed into lore with Mistra and right, all that. Right, right. So we had that here, and we brought that into, and the Forgotten Realms had plenty of it also, and Dragonlands too. You know, it's just, it's baked into heroic fantasy, so here's the system for it. That's really what it was. Yeah, and in mechanic terms, it meant that the... Elven high mages could cast spells up to 11th level. Right. They basically wanted to make sure that elves were always the most powerful. I believe in the current lore, Mistra was like, yeah, no, no one's casting spells of those levels. I'm turning those off. Yes, yes. On the server level. That was the end of the, that was basically one of the, when second edition ended. She shut that part of the matrix down. Right. Time no, of troubles happens. No, no more of this neo None shit. None of this nonsense. Tenth and eleventh level spells. You, you know, and really it became they got eleventh level spells because uh, the ancient wizards of Myth Dranor had tenth level spells, and somebody wanted to su- to one up somebody else. Of course, of course. Neener, neener, neener. Lore. You always got to have someone one upping, like pulling a Vecna. That's how it goes. So in third edition, they started introducing different power sources for magic. That's where we had yeah. wizards and where we had sorcerers who both did arcane magic but got it differently. And uh, they talked about that some with clerics and druids, but it wasn't quite as profound, you know. And bards were very much in the wizard camp. Mm-hmm. But you, they also acknowledged that you could make it with the sorcerer camp purely from flavor, even though bards and sorcerers both used charisma. So, But they had this other one that came in later on called pact magic or binding. It was, yeah, it was binding more so back then most of the time. And it was like, I think, representation of those kinds of magicians or spellcasters or whatever you want to call them 
that would like bind a genie or a demon or some yeah. otherworldly spirit. Just, yeah, they get their powers either by summoning or siphoning or binding them from like otherworldly or just really powerful beings. It came about in, in, in one of the later source books of 3rd edition. This is one of the things I think 3rd edition re- did really well is that it introduced later source books that expanded on new options. And we'll talk more about some of these in a little bit. But, you know, the Tome of Magic was one of the first ones they oh. did where they're like, we're going to expand on magic in, in a complementary way. Um, it was difficult to balance pack binding magic because it didn't have the same resource expenditure as the other classes. But they they did this increasingly more and more in tradition. Like with the miniatures handbook, they created the martial class, which had the powers of a cleric in practice, but didn't actually use any magic to do it. You know, it was like a, a war leader who could yeah. heal people with words, and there wasn't the same cost as like memorizing spells or anything. It was a very, very good class, but they were fighty, you know? Yeah. So it was these different kinds of power sources for magic started getting introduced. Um, and then in fourth edition, binding game mechanics basically became your warlocks. Yeah, they warlocks, leaned into all of it, they, they categorized just... all of it. Everybody has power sources now. We're just going to talk about all the power sources that you get. Yeah, they they pretty much just rolled that in there. And the thing with pack magic is it can kind of lean into it's on the arcane side of things, but it can also be towards the divine side of things. It just it's more dependent on who the pact is made with, really. Narrative driven. Yeah, it's more narratively driven and flavored, which is kind of like started where you see some of that eroding of that arcane versus divine. Exactly. Aside from just spell overlap. Right, right. That is everywhere. But they're, they're really, you know, so this coalesced in 4th edition, and uh, they kept it in 5th edition, and I'm glad. I wish that they had more of it in 5th in edition than, than they do, more like 4th edition, which is rituals, which didn't have necessarily the same power source as uh, other things. But, it, was, it was their out-of-combat spells were pretty much all rituals in But anybody edition. could do them. Right? Right? <sighs> if yeah. you knew the ritual, okay. it, it, it didn't, you, didn't, you could be a fighter and perform a ritual, or That's a rogue right? and perform a ritual, which was cool, which added back that flavor of yeah. magic being magical. It's, it's a very sword and sorcery kind of feel. Like, yes. my barbarian can do this ritual, which is kind of like a silly thought mechanically when you think of barbarians, because they're always like the anti-magic, like... Oh, like, except you could totally even, see them like having some oh, sacred sticks around a fire, totally. you know, <laughs> you know, and you're like, whatever, Conan. Right. Exactly. So, you know, that persisted into fifth edition and there are still rituals in fifth edition, which is, which is really great. Um, yeah, they're a fun little extra way to cast spells. The, I think still the most cohesive one, and we'll talk about it a little bit later for all of these kinds of ritual magic or other sorts of magic systems that we saw was in third edition's Unearthed Arcana. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, in fourth edition, they basically were your non-combat spells. You could use rituals to like prep for battle or unlock a door or something like that. Um, now there are five classes of ritual components, you know, there are alchemical ones, mystic salves for healing rituals. Um, you have rare herbs for nature rituals. You have incense for religion and, and that kind of stuff. So there are, you know, some mechanics tied to what kind of ritual you do. Yeah. There's less than fourth edition, but there's little bits here and there. And there are ways you can get around it, but with and like ritual scroll. The, the ritual or, caster feat is a, a popular way to just be able to cast a bunch of ritual spells. They'll be tagged as ritual spells in the spell description in 5e, so you'll kind of know which ones you can use as a ritual. I believe it takes 10 minutes to cast a ritual spell, yep. but it does not expend a spell slot. Correct. Which is a big deal. So one of the things that they dropped in later editions that... I was sort of curious, A, when they introduced it, uh, why. I have the books, I think, somewhere, but uh, why they dropped it then later was Incarnum, when they introduced it in 3.5. You know, it was like a really radically different type of magic system. But y- you have a note here, like, it, 
it's not considered part of the core D20 system. No, it's it's kind of out there. It's like one that's like, yeah, this is a magic system that you could have used, but it wasn't like ever like fully integrated. I remember when they released it and it was large in large part due to community response because the community was asking some of the other complimentary games and third party stuff. There was pressure on wizards to do, why don't you have an alternate magic system than the Vancean system? And Magic of Incarnum was what came out of that. They published a source book that tried to do it, and it just didn't really take. It's kind of like Psionics, but with Chakra. <clears throat> yes. That's really kind of the approach. They even approached it that way with like how they incorporate it. Kind of like, you know, they're always like, Psionics are different. They used to say Arcanum is different. Yes. Right? They used, but the phrase also was applied there. And it just never really took off. I mean. And so it kind of disappeared. When it came out, it felt like solving a problem that no one had. Yeah, it was it was it was a solution looking for a problem. But it was a neat it was a neat system. I mean, it was cool. I as someone who loves playing monks, I was like, more chakra stuff? Yes. <laughs> I like this. Yeah. This is cool. What was interesting in fourth edition when they brought out this notion of primal magic, because it, it automatically made sense. Oh, it's like for oh, the for the, the the divine casters that are really more primal. Druids. Like, yeah, druids and rangers and whatnot. Yeah, exactly. Shamans, I mean. We're in 40, huh? But but as a power source, barbarians also got it, you know, because barbarians have elemental powers sometimes. Or oh, yeah, they're, they're primal as fuck, man. Right, exactly. So um, what's what's been interesting to watch change over the editions are some of the other sources like Shadow Magic. True Name Magic. They've kind of come and gone in little supplements here and there. Right. They didn't exist in second edition except to like, have a concept. The three, five edition. had this content bloat. So you they, saw it blew up. There were systems for them. With all these different... And it was cool because... What kind of like the cream rose to the top there, and we got a lot of like really good things through that. Just trying all <laughs> throwing things at the wall and seeing yeah. what stuck. Really, I'm absolutely a fan of competition begets more quality, you know. Um, but fourth edition, we did, a lot of that went away, and they tried to release it as supplements, and it had some of it. But the uh, I think they brought some of it back in fifth edition. And again, this is I really, I really think talking about power sources, clarifying that magic and the rules behind it are based on power source that you get is really the service that, that we got out of fourth There's edition. There's a resource that yeah. you are spending. Or at least some source it comes from. Like, because re- warlocks, for instance, in fifth edition don't have so much resource that they have to spend. They spend it and it comes back real fast. Yeah, they get a short rest. And then it's good to go. You know, Whereas a wizard has a lot of resource that's planned over a day. A little more planning required. Right, exactly. Yeah, they kind of leave that more up to the player than the system now, which is kind of nice. So, you know, but there are other systems that, that are out there in the field, too. Um, and I think that, broadly speaking, it's it's kind of skewed away from D&D's Vancian system and it more really toward, has. like, mana system, magic points. Oh, yeah. In video games, that's all you see. That's just, like, that's part of the much, course. That's pretty much how it works. And then you can find those systems. a lot. You know, everybody's, somebody's, every edition, somebody's bolted that on to a, yeah. a D&D. One of the interesting things was that Tunnels and Trolls, which was a D&D competitor, used this. They used mana points because they thought... The designers like the Vansium system sounds dumb, so we're not going to use it. <laughs> I agree. Um, and you see it in GURPS and what a couple different other games as well. But uh, if you want to bring this into 5e, there's a really easy hack you can do. Just allow your players to treat spell slots like a mana point pool. Essentially, like you can combine two. If you have access to a fourth level spell slot, you have to have access to it by your class feature. You can combine two two level spells to cast a fourth level spell. And yeah, this gives, you know, this can give a little power boost a little bit, but honestly, if your player wants to blow all of their magic really quick on a couple of fireballs, 
Let them. Let them. You can bring in reinforcements in, the, in like the end of this round of combat. What's funny about this is this was an idea that came about toward the end of second edition. It's such an easy they, way to they, do it. They actually put it in one of their source books in the supplements, and it was so controversial at the time. People hated this notion like, because, oh my God. how dare you? It's, it's, and they would argue back and forth. It's more powerful. It's less yeah, powerful. Right. Blah, 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 blah. It's more flexible, which in D&D usually means it's more powerful. And I'm always like... versatility in this game it goes a long way. But remember, guys, it's a game in our imagination. Yeah. It's as powerful as we want it to be. You know, anyway, so I, I totally agree. You know, like, you want you want to have mana points? This is an it, easy fix, it works quick hack. Fine. It's fine. We, it's actually, like, in my opinion, less powerful than the other way. Yeah, and you saw them even do this in the 5A, uh, the 5A. You saw them do this in the 5E UA Mystic that they put out on Unearthed Arcana, right? Right, which uses side points. It uses a side point pool. It works fine. We have a, I have a player in one of the games I run who's been using this. Um, and it works just fine, honestly. There's no issue with it. It's nice that he has the versatility to use his points how he wants. He does, and uh, and, and it means that he gets to use more powerful stuff than he otherwise and then would. Sometimes he's out of stuff sooner, and that's fine. It, it, I like players having the ability to choose that risk reward that they want to take. One of the other ones I really like that I think is worth calling out came out of the toward the end of three five when they had I think is the best supplement for additional rules in a game that I've encountered in any of the editions. It's their Unearthed Arcana. That's high praise. Yeah, it's good. I, I mean, mean, I guess that's why it's called Unearthed Arcana now, because this book was so good. Right. And in this comes, there was one in second edition that was similarly influential, um, but fewer people had access to it because the TSR did not have as successful a distribution network as Wizards does with Hasbro. Um, but this one was great, and it really exposed a lot of the... It, it was like lifting the hood on your car. You got to see how the game ran for the first time, a lot of the subsystems they used and how they came by the math. And they could they told you where you could tweak it. And it ranged from like epic level down to whatever, but they, they included a bunch of different kinds of magic. And one of them was called Vitalizing, which is basically... Spellcasters, they cast a great many number of spells in a day, but every spell cast maybe as a burden on their health, on their health or their vitality, right? So it comes from some part of their essence of their mm -hmm. life. Uh, basically, it's like a variant spell point system, um, but you have a pool, a pool of spell points that represent physical, not just mental limit, right? So as you spend them, um, when your point pool falls to half, you become fatigued. So this is like where you would see in... The classic mage. Like, I cast my spells tired. and I run out. Even Dragonlance yeah. has this. Like oh, This yeah. is the very definition of... Raceland is always Raceland. tired. And casting magic, yeah. you know? So this works really well for force <laughs> points, too. And it's modified by your ability score. So I think, you know, rather than re reinvent wheels, it's easy to look back and see, oh, okay, we had this, and let's repurpose it for modern yeah, times. That's why I base my mages on Dalimar instead of Raceland. I don't want to be, like, tired all the time. <laughs> frail. Dark elves are always more interesting. Yeah, you know. So there's also skill-limited magic systems. Um, I think that some of the best ones I've seen here actually come from other role-playing game systems, like Fate has a really good one. Mage yeah. has a really good one, Ars, too. Ars Magica. Yep. Yeah. It's essentially uh, a system where the magic system is just broken down into a number of skills, and you perform them doing skill checks, usually, and that's how the magic functions. Shadowrun does this, too. You try to do a thing, and you have a certain level of proficiency in your magic whatever it is, and you're either able to do it or you're not. Maybe there's yeah. a cost associated with it, but the more skill you have, the less cost there is to you. And then I think the last last major system that I've encountered that I love, and I encountered it first in video games, but this goes back to that Unarthed Arcana book I was talking about is mm -hmm. Recharge Magic. And uh, this is basically the notion that 
you have a bunch of spells at your disposal and you cast them and there's some component that refreshes at a faster like, rate than daily. It's like World of Warcraft or an MMO. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Like, the, assuming no mana bar and it's just recharge. Diablo has this with a mana bar and Warcraft has it with just this, the ability itself. Um, but what it does is it really clarifies the things that your character is good at and lets you just spam that button that you as much as you want, which is deeply satisfying, obviously, you know? Um, but it does change the, a lot of the feel of the game. And when they when they debuted it in Unearthed Arcana, they did it based on spell levels. So mm-hmm. you had a slot. Let's say you were a fifth level caster and you can cast at the most third level spells. Okay. You'd cast a third level spell and the third level slot would re- take a certain number of rounds to recharge. Okay. And it was your highest level, so it would take longest to recharge. But your first level spells, or your cantrips even, would also have a recharge. But because you were you had so much more power than those, they would recharge much faster. If you were 20th level, for instance, way at the other end of the spectrum, then you'd mastered such magic and your ninth level spells would take the highest amount of time to recharge, D4 plus one rounds. And by that point, you're so powerful that you could cast a first level spell almost every round, you know, boom, 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 boom. They play tested this. And in, yeah. in practice, what it meant up... This was back when they play tested stuff? This wow. was at the end of 3.5 when they were wow. play testing stuff because so many other publishers <laughs> were doing it and what else are going to do in Wizards at the time? We're just like, let's play test this. Yeah, come on. Uh, so what it what it ended up being was it solved one particular problem, which we see with magic systems, especially the Vancian system of players coming in and blowing all of their spells early. You I'm know? the opposite. I'm like, I'm too scared to use them. And it, then I'm like, oh, we're long resting? Son of a bitch. Exactly. And it solved that one too, because th- this is like two sides of the same coin. You either it, it represents a misuse of resources. In a perfect world, you rest, everybody rests when all your resources are spent. But as a caster, it sucks when you blow all your spells early and then you have nothing you can cast just as much as it sucks when you cast only a few frugal things and then yeah. rest and waste all your spells this, you never cast. This is one of the reasons one of my first characters in 5e was the sun soul monk because you can just shoot key blasts forever without running out and i was like that's awesome so you know they they made this assumption that players because of these reasons just tended to and this is based on a lot of the anecdotal experience that they had and talked to talk to the community players would blow all of their magic powers everything they could at an encounter and then rest immediately and this is the same thing we did in neverwinter nights the video game the dungeons and dragons video game i always did that you'd blow all your spells and then you would find a safe spot and you'd click rest and the bar would go for 10 seconds and then you'd be back up to full always and then you'd go for the next one because you always want to be at your badass why not which is like that whole criticism that gygax has at the start of this episode we're talking about like they just want to have those comic books superheroes of course we want to have comic books superheroes why wouldn't we want to have that like, Gary, have you seen what happens past level 11? Come know, on. Right? Like, have you played this game? So this one, the recharge magic leans into that. It, it takes it and goes, here's a specific way you can do that. You can assume that you're going to be full strength for every encounter, and it changes the encounter design for the DM so that you're, you have to you get to throw more things at the players. It's kind of fun because sometimes as a DM, there's like a, just so many cool monsters that you're like, I'll never get to use these because we ne- no one plays high-level campaigns. Or, you know, CR feels like, you know, if you're actually following it, it can be pretty limited. Right. The only thing is it'll be a little bit, you'll have to kind of experiment to see like how much more powerful right. are they? Right, and, right. And you know, that's my, in 5e, what works really well, I think, is testing the waters. And if it wasn't enough, reinforcements arrive. Exactly. And that's a great thing in 5e is that numbers matter. And you don't want to maybe overwhelm, sometimes you'll be surprised, like you'll put out a, a number and it may overwhelm the party. And you're like, I don't need to use reinforcements. Right. And you had a really good one in one of our previous games with, narratively how you brought in those reinforcements oh yeah well i mean 
DM tricks, right? You always build it into the scenery so that there's more bad guys that can come crawling from the woodwork if you need it. Um, one of the things that made this the recharge magic thing work so well was that they went through all of the spells in the core rules and they called out the ones specifically that didn't play by the rules that had a specific recharge time. And it was things like, you know, um, mage armor would recharge every six hours. Now it lasted for four hours when you cast it, right? Invisibility you could use every five minutes instead of at a. And that that changes some of the strategies. It, it does. really does. It, it, it does. comes back to that rule that I like. You change one thing about that system, and you change that world because that system is part of that world, right? And that's like the only downside to using a system like a recharge system is you have to go through for each spell and stuff and make sure you're adjusting those. And then you might also want to look at any features of classes that you may be stepping on the toes of a little bit. That's exactly where it went. And it, and it calls that out in here paragraph in this, in this, um, uh, supplement. Mm-hmm. But in practice, when we use this, we didn't go back period. We, we kept it forever more. <laughs> even went with even that in forever. the pathfinder forever. Wow. We kept it, but we also had to start balancing class features in that because same way. Some of the class features, like you get this resource back. You're like, this means nothing to me. Or X times per day or anything like that. Yeah. Exactly. So Interesting. We, we, but what, oh, what, yeah. but what we started mm. doing, what we got good at as a table was mm-hmm. being able to do that on the fly. So we built a new muscle, so to speak for us, a new skill where we could adjudicate what felt right for well, how play fast and muscle, right? How fast yeah. that should recharge. What, how does that, and we could tune it to how we yeah. wanted it to and feel. And if you have a good table, went. you can do that. Right. You know, you right. have to have have like good mature players though because other clients are just going to try to find the place to abuse we it. hadn't even thought about it before we got it and i think that that's exactly the point of an arthakana is oh so you got a table that's pretty good so maybe try tweaking some things yeah. and here's some things you might tweak you know that's a fun one so there are a lot I'm, of examples of hybrid systems as a too. dm i really like rolling those recharge rolls you know i know like, it's fun right for breath maybe weapons, it gets it I'm back like, oh maybe I can oh use the it dragon again. gets its breath weapon back look fourth edition yes. went hard onto this it learned this lesson from i think on earth arcana on this yeah. playtest and it went straight up toward you get to use these every encounter you get to use these every round you get to use these every day that's true the encounter powers really leaned into just use this shit. i love encounter powers i do too mechanically honestly i really do i just wish they had like just phrase them like you could have been like they recharge every 15 minutes no one's playing a 15 minute rounds you know how many rounds of combat that is it no one's even playing that be based on time you know you could say like well, you that, can use this once yes, per major conflict yes but the problem was that the descriptions in that in 4e were so gamified and they weren't based on like you can use this once per day or it recharges at dawn that's the poetry right. layer that they just right. wiped away they put the work on the player you they put the just, work on the player and the dm you could have just painted some some stuff onto those mechanics exactly and that's the thing like that's why it's gonna it get me the presentation that's what's gonna get me to buy the book is I because think, you presented it yeah. in a nice way not because you gave me a good system necessarily yeah. it's because you did the work for me and also made it look good Right? Yeah, you want, gave me that poetry I layer that, that inspires layer. my imagination. Right? That's what I'm here for. Like, outside of, like, game mechanics that I don't have to design myself. I don't so, have time for that. So there are other hybrid systems, I think, maybe the last parts we can talk about. Um, and I think that Mage, the Ascension, the original, is... Uh, Probably the best example. It's a really great magic system. And, and what's cool about it is that you have some like quintessence that you can spend to make things easier, but it's tied into how you achieve magic, right? It's a soft system. So you can do whatever you want that makes sense within the world of the system. And there isn't really much softer. There isn't really a guideline aside from what thematically is appropriate, but there's one big guide. There's one big guideline about how successful the spell is and it's paradox, right? So when you cast magic, generally it'll work. And, the, and the, the fewer people are that'll see it, the easier it is to do. But if you're going to do something that's very obviously not plausible, 
obviously magical, the people's disbelief of what's witnessing makes it harder for you to pull it off. Fascinating. And this is called paradox. And if you fail or try to do something really quite paradoxical, like try to pull the moon out of the sky, then paradox will come around and have a side effect that's negative against you to balance out whatever it was that you just did. Huh. So, you know, that's that gives the so GM the cost, narrative control. Right? There's always cost. You but might be able to dodge soft. it. But, you know, like... How, how does the DM adjudicate the cost? Do they roll on a table? Or do you give an examples? There, there isn't generally a table. It's it's more about how plausible it is and how you would accommodate... Uh, they, they give some examples for things that are easy to do. And I'll give uh-huh. you, for instance, a cop pulls you over for speeding. And uh, you get off the front of the ticket because you're a mage by waving your fingers at the cop who's about to give you his ticket and say, these are not the droids you're looking for. And that's probably pretty easy. It would be easier still if you just waved your hands over him and went, yeah, officer, you're really tired right now. It is four in the morning. You know, something even more believable. Mm-hmm. Something unbelievable would be gotcha. y- he pulls you over and suddenly your Ferrari is actually a magic school bus that takes off and flies away into the sky. And he's going to disbelieve you. And also anybody else who sees a magic school bus is going to disbelieve you. Much harder role to make. Paradox is going to try to bite you. It's interesting because in D&D, all of the magic, you know, and the divine depends on belief. Yes. And in Mage the Ascension, it works the other way. It depends on disbelief, makes it harder to cast the spells. It's very interesting approach to take yeah and magic system yeah and it allows for a lot of creative flexibility and all kinds of interesting stuff yeah, like that it does include know? bits and pieces of all the those other different systems it does um you know and like ars magica has a skill-based system but you only have so many before you're exhausted classic fatigue situation right, right. but yeah there's there's you know most systems are really hybrid systems honestly just like when you look at literature most of them are mixed they're not totally hard or totally soft systems which is why i come back to and this is of course classic skylar advice the magic system whatever ones you have at your table and i hope that you have a bunch are a way by which to talk about the fantastic at the game you know it's it's the way by which the game where you get the on the wonder it breaks the rules and it does it by design and it's worth having that conversation because it's not the same for every player at the table so that they have some sense of what's mystical about it that's the point because if it's all predictable then it loses something really special about dungeons and dragons which is that it's shared imagination and can be quite wondrous sometimes magic and imagination man they go together yeah yeah the the Magic in Dungeons and Dragons reminds me a lot of Magic the Gathering cards in that they're all like specifically rules that break other rules. Yes. Right. It's like you can now do this, like even though normally you wouldn't be able to. And as a player, like being able to break the rules is always fun, especially when there's other rules to make sure it doesn't get out of hand. Yes. Because then no one's mad at you for breaking them. Yeah, I'm just playing. Everyone's the game. stoked. Like, oh, you can fly now. That's awesome. <laughs> right. Unless there's stormtroopers chasing you. Yeah, you don't want those guys flying. (laughs) That's not as fun. Okay, well, that's a wrap for this time. All right. Thanks for tuning in, listening to us talk about magic systems. Hopefully there was some good that came out of this for your game. Yeah, have a good one, and we'll catch you later. Talk to you next time. 